Also for our guests, just to give you an idea of what's been going on here on Sunday mornings, last week we finished up a series that we had been in on the book of 2 Corinthians. We had been in since last September. The title of the series is, was Weak is Strong. And if you're interested in any of that material, or if you're a member here and kind of want to check out what they're doing down at Midtown around that material, it's all online, it's all at the website, so you can check that out at your convenience. But today, we begin a short series by the same writer who wrote 2 Corinthians, and that is God through Paul. And today we're going to study the book, we're going to begin a three-week study on the book of Philemon, one of the shortest books in the New Testament. It's only one chapter, 25 verses. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Philemon. Uh, That's in the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar with the New Testament, just look around for 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. It's right after Titus. If you see the book of Hebrews, you've gone too far, so just to the left of Hebrews. Title of this three-week series is Releasing and Reconciling. And, and right now, part of the burden I feel is I want to prepare you to be surprised. Because it is very easy to underestimate the impact of these 25 verses. Which is why a guy named R.C. Lucas quote, brought this quote this morning. R.C. Lucas once said, quote, Paul's letter to Philemon is one of the special treasures of the New Testament, the special treasures. And we have an opportunity to open up that treasure this morning and to experience it together. So in a moment, we're going to pray, and then I will provide you some historical context on this letter. But let's jump in right now at verse 1. I'm going to read, in the interest of time, through verse 20, beginning with, of course, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Two, Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, 
sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own free will. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Title this morning's message is Receiving Onesimus. Receiving Onesimus. And before we go anywhere else, let's just stop and let's declare our need for Jesus this morning as we go to his word. Please pray with me. Lord, we gather together this morning, not simply worshiping you, but aware of certain burdens we carry. Lord, aware of afflictions that we have that that, that represent a testimony to all of us that we are not home yet. Lord, I pray that you would help me as I seek to serve these good people and compensate for the weakness that I feel in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We don't know all the intriguing details behind this short and mysterious story, this mysterious letter, but we do know enough facts to understand the basic storyline, and those facts are as follows. Fact. Onesimus was a rather useless slave in the household of a man named Philemon. He was struggling, and he was dissatisfied, and so apparently Onesimus fled from Philemon, possibly stealing something of great value in his escape. Fact, Onesimus, therefore, was a fugitive of justice when during this strange twist of events, he turned up for help to a Roman prisoner named Paul, that is the Apostle Paul. And to deepen the irony around all this, Onesimus was then radically converted to Christ and eventually became a vital part of Paul's ministry operation. Fact, while certainly free in Christ, Onesimus was still AWOL from Philemon. He was a runaway slave. He was a runaway slave who had committed a crime by stealing from his master. So for Onesimus, there was unfinished business back at Philemon's. Fact, to go forward with God 
Onesimus had to go back. He had to go back to Philemon. And so Paul sends this letter to prepare the way. Brothers and sisters, this small epistle delivers some huge drama. Because it entices us to ask some questions that we wouldn't ordinarily ask. Questions that are very specific to this epistle, like can Philemon actually be reconciled to a slave, not just a slave, but a slave who sinned against him? And by the way, it's, it's hard for us in 2016 to comprehend the audacity of Paul's request here. Because the words that he speaks about slave, slaves and implied in that slavery in and of itself are absolutely revolutionary. I mean, just consider some of the things that he's saying here. Just as a brief aside, Paul tells Philemon, number one, of this deep emotional bond that he has developed with his slave, Onesimus. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Verse 12, he says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. These are remarkably relational words for a man to use with regards to a slave. But then secondly, Paul says that Philemon's relationship can be no longer defined by the past with Onesimus. In other words, it can't simply be a master-slave relationship. He says in verse 16, you have him back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. He's saying, Philemon, things cannot go back to the way they were. The gospel makes you something more than that. The gospel makes you brothers. And then lastly, Paul says in verse 17, Paul, he tells Philemon to receive Onesimus the very same way he would receive Paul. He says, receive him as you would receive me. I mean, what's really amazing about this is that Paul sees the gospel as redefining and reformatting the entire institution of slavery. Why don't we hear more about that? Nevertheless, none of that minimizes the seriousness of this situation for Onesimus. Because the fact remains that in the New Testament, a slave was still property, and a runaway slave was a criminal. In fact, I brought a quote with me by J.B. Lightfoot this morning from his commentary. He said, quote, Roman law practically imposed no limits of power, no limits to power of the master over his slave. The alternative of life or death rested solely with Philemon, and slaves were constantly crucified for far lighter offenses than his. As a thief... And a runaway, he had no claim to forgiveness. This book raises some radical questions. I mean, beginning with, why would Paul send Onesimus back? How is, how is Paul going to negotiate that? How is Paul, while we're talking about Paul and his ministry, how is Paul's ministry going to continue without this vital asset, this man who was converted under his ministry, who's become a son, who's so dear to his heart, he's going to send him away? Paul describes himself as old. He's in prison. How about this question? Can anything alter the way Philemon actually sees Onesimus? 
Can anything alter the way you and I see people who need our help or potentially our forgiveness? Now, I understand you're sitting there, you're saying, Dave, I mean, <laughs> it is May, it is 2016, and it, it can be a challenge at times because we can think, you know, these are prisoners and slaves, and this is AD 62. How in the world can that relate to my life and my family and the fact that I just got a bill from the IRS that I was, un- I was not expecting about a week ago? Let me ask you a few questions if that pops into your mind. First, have you ever been hesitant to answer the phone because you know the person calling is just too much work? you have anybody like that in your life? Have you ever looked at somebody in your family or maybe in your relational network and asked, can they really change? Is that really possible? Have you ever ever been asked to give up something or to give up someone you love because they need to go somewhere else? There is some kind of prior claim that seems to be upon their life that is drawing them away from you. Or how about this one? Do you know anyone who is unreconciled with a fellow Christian and you would just love to help them? You would love to see them reconciled together. If you answered yes to any of those questions, or maybe you answered yes to all of those questions, then God has something for you in this short series. Because this entire series is built really around one huge gospel idea. And that is that the gospel shapes what we see in those we serve. The gospel shapes what we see in those we serve. And I want to look at that in two different ways here in Philemon for how it worked for Paul. Because through the gospel, Paul saw two different things about those he served, specifically Onesimus and Philemon. Number one, he saw that service costs. It costs. Service costs us. Okay, now just think about that for a second. And what I want to do is I want to take us all back into the context. And I just want to ask you to put yourself in Paul's position. I mean, the dude is in prison... Many commentators suggest that he was chained to a Roman guard. So he's in this season of life, and maybe you can relate to this right now. Paul is confined. He is sidelined. He is afflicted. He is alone. He expected, perhaps, that ministry was going to go one way. It's gone another way. He is stripped of all of his conveniences. There is no cable, no takeout, no internet, no iPhone. There's nothing. It's one of those high-stress seasons where the wheels seem to have completely come off, and into the middle of this mess comes this slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus comes knocking while Paul is in prison. Verse 10, remember, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, again, let's just go with that. Imagine for a second that you are Paul. You're having quite a day. I mean, you're having quite a year. You're imprisoned, afflicted, you're immobile, it's been a hard life, and next thing you know, there's a slave knocking on your door. Excuse me. 
excuse me, is this Paul? Is this Paul? Paul, is this a bad time? I'm in a bad way. I've got problems. I'm a, I'm a runaway. I've stolen something. I've got all this drama surrounding me. I've got issues. Can you help me? He's a criminal. He's lost. He's got a very complicated story, and he's so desperate he's turning to a prisoner for help. That's how bad this is. Now, here's my question for us. Under those circumstances, what would you see? What would you see? I mean, I'll be honest. I, I would probably see like an, an imposition, an interruption, a nuisance. Certainly not somebody I should be serving. I am in prison, thank you very much. You know, it's amazing how much of Paul's ministry actually took place in the most difficult moments of his life. And I think one of the things that we need to see, one of the things that we need to wrap our brain around with respect to Paul is that for him, service never waited for the ideal moments. It never waited for the ideal moments, and I'm not sure it should for us either, because service costs. Service costs time. Service costs effort and energy and patience. You know, every time we do the Lord's Supper here, we begin with, on the night he was betrayed. Think about what was going on on the night he was betrayed. Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples the things they're going to need the most because he he knows he's going to the cross. He's going to to be crucified. And he's trying to wash their feet. And Peter is stopping them and giving him all kinds of problems. And Thomas is over in the corner doubting him. And Judas is fixing to betray him. And nobody really knows what's going on there. What's Jesus doing while all that's going on? Well, he's, he's pressing beyond their foolishness to try to get some points across that they're going to need. He's conveying in John 17 his heart of love for them, his affection for them. He's giving them through the sacrament of the broken bread and the poured wine. He's giving them a way to remember him. All of that is happening right before he's being crucified. Right before the worst moment where all the pressure is on. I mean, it's, and it's the same for Paul. You look at Onesimus and you, you realize there's only one conclusion. Onesimus is coming and this dude is a piece of work. This guy is a mess. And this guy's coming to Paul and seems to be completely imperceptive to the fact he's in prison. In case you haven't noticed, people in need are not necessarily perceptive to your prison. They need other things and sometimes can't see any further than that. They've got problems. They need help. They need care. They need companionship. Maybe even like Onesimus, they need conversion. In other words, they need our time. You know, I stink at evangelism. It's, it's one of the things I, I hate. I'm trying to do better, and I'm trying to get out more, and I'm having a little bit, very little bit of success. But what I've realized is that evangelism is never going to wait for ideal moments. You know, it's, it's not like I can say to God, God, I am, the, I am thy servant. 
I am available. I am at your disposal from 3 to 3.15 this afternoon. The rest of it's booked. Ministry never waits for ideal moments. Evangelism never waits for ideal moments. Paul didn't wait for the ideal moment. I was talking to a member of Four Oaks recently who was retired, and he was telling me that one of the things he loves about retirement is that the time that it affords him to, to slow down and make time for people and how he's been able to reach different people and make time for people. And I, I really loved the conversation because I so appreciated seeing his, his vision for using his retirement for the kingdom of God. But as I've been thinking about that since then, I've been realizing, you know, Paul's not retired here. He's in the thick of it. He's in the middle of his mess. He's not retired at all. And the point that I'm trying to make and to repeat to you is that service never waits for ideal moments. And if it is an ideal moment, it may not be service. You get a call from the church. Church needs volunteers. The church, somebody needs meals. Single mom needs to be moved to another location. You know, we can often end up saying, I can't serve, it's too inconvenient. Well, God says, if it's not inconvenient, it's not service. If it, if, it, if it doesn't qualify in some way as service, then it's not service. See, what, what happens is like these, you know, us cozy Western Christians, is we like to strip sacrifice from our definition of service. So that service really means, you know, it's an opportunity that comes in the right time that really requires little of me. God looks at us and says, that's not service, that's a hobby. That's not service, that's Netflix, that's what that is. See, when Onesimus knocks, it's going to cost us. You know, maybe you felt that today as you saw this, the, the announcement for the orphan care meeting today. Adoptions staring you in the face. Oh, it's going to cost. As challenging as you think it's going to be, oh, it's going to be worse. And so much more glorious than you can ever imagine. Because when Onesimus knocks, it's going to cost in a glorious way. See for, see, for most of us, it's just, it's hard to see beyond our own prison. Because the nature of being in this time like Paul's in, where you feel confined and you feel in prison, is that it turns us inward. It turns our focus inward. We, we begin to nurture a kind of self-pity. Self-pity always arrives with a voice in our life. Self-pity is always, always convincing us to say, you know what, I'm looking around and I don't deserve this. I mean, I, I can tell you other people that do, but I don't. I don't deserve this. None of my friends have this challenge. God is shafting me. I deserve better. And what happens is that our vision of life, our vision of God shrinks to the size of our cell that we're in prison at. And we become too obsessed to even see Onesimus arriving at our door. You know, I've, sh I've shared with you in the past that Kim and I have had some parenting challenges that, that didn't resolve quickly or easily. And I noticed certain patterns that at times, sadly, can continue to this day that when 
A kid spirals in some way. This false prophet appears in my soul. And this false prophet always begins by speaking the word to to me. T-O-O, to. And this false prophet just speaks to me and says, oh, it's too much. Oh, it's too hard. It's been too long. You're too old. You're too tired. And these twos are always, always coming at me. And I, I, I can end up feeling where it ultimately delivers me is, wait a minute, I deserve better. What's happening in this situation is not proportional to the investment that I've made in that person. Therefore, it's my conclusion that I deserve better. And I never get perspective unless I take my eyes off of my prison and put them on the gospel. Because what the gospel does is the gospel comes and just obliterates self-pity by fixing the cross in the middle of our prison where God says through the cross, behold what you really deserve. The only being in history who was ever perfectly pure, the only being in history who was ever perfectly righteous, who obeyed God's law in all things at all times, the only being in the history of the world who actually has a right to self-pity was left hanging upon the cross suspended, and instead of hanging there thinking of himself, he was thinking of you. Instead of being preoccupied with his own problems, he was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they they do. Instead of thinking about how all of this is affecting him, he was substituting himself for us. He was serving us. And that's the good news of the gospel. And when we begin to get that, the gospel begins to loosen us up so we can be stretched in the prison, so that we can be stretched even when we suffer. Because the reason service costs is because service stretches us. It stretches us. You know, when you're called upon to serve sometimes, it tests your sense of adequacy. And we see that here in Philemon. I I love this picture in Philemon. Paul's in prison. Paul's having his own problems. but Paul's still prepared. It's not like Paul saying, well, wait a minute, you don't get it, Philemon. I'm in prison. I'm hardly prepared to be able to receive you and minister to you and meet you. Paul wasn't, wasn't in prison waiting for a better life in order for, himself, for, in order for him to serve. He wasn't waiting for the markets to change so that he could finally, you know, contribute. He wasn't waiting for his health to turn around, for it just to be a better circumstances. Paul's not thinking he's sidelined in life until life gets more peaceful or until the kids all love God and he finally feels qualified to be able to say something for Jesus so that care kind of bubbles forth from his soul and drenches anybody that stands before him. That's not the way it works. Onesimus arrives in moments of weakness. Onesimus arrives when we feel confined when it's a sacrifice to speak the gospel to Onesimus. And the question we have to ask is, what do you see when Onesimus comes knocking? Because service never waits for ideal moments. Do you? Service never waits for ideal moments. Service costs. Paul saw that. It's one of the main points that comes from Philemon. Second point. Baggage matters. Baggage matters. 
Because that service that we were just talking about is always aimed at broken people. In other words, the challenge is not just when they come. The challenge is what they bring when they come. Because people arrive in our lives as Onesimus. They arrive as slaves fleeing the consequences of something they've done. They arrive as as slaves who are relatively imperceptive to how their choices have compromised their goals or how their choices may have compromised even the desires that they say they, they want. And we don't tend to think about that when we think about service. There, there's just something about the way that we think about service that just sanitizes it, you know? We forget about people's baggage, and we, are, we reimagine service, or we reimagine people as just these cool projects that God calls us to work on. And then they speak, <laughs> or they sin, or their baggage comes out, or they contradict themselves, and And we get all disillusioned because somehow we can't reconcile the difference between what we thought it was going to be and what it actually is. I mean, how many leaders do you know? Or how many parents have you met that that labor to reconcile the difference between what they thought leadership was going to be or what they thought parenting was going to be, which had a lot to do with them standing in front of people or standing in front of their kids with the Bible open and the kids just asking these intelligent questions because their spirits are alive with God and there's all this spiritual activity in the home. But what they really got is this baggage. Is this anger and sin and crying and that's on a good day. You know what this epistle does is it wakes us up. It reminds us that service is aimed at broken people. Broken people with real problems. And that's where God always starts. I was telling somebody earlier that actually there's speculation that Onesimus replaced Timothy as the bishop of Ephesus. And that's where this whole story ends up. But one of the things that it makes us realize is that the future of the church is bound up in broken people. People that right now may may be in slavery. I mentioned this in the last series that Paul said to the Corinthians. Hey, Corinthians! Chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Consider your calling, he said. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Paul says, no, you're the baggage people. You're the people with the baggage. And I'm going to change the world through you. See, there's this harsh reality that we have to confront so that we can get beyond it, so that we can see beyond it, which is that the future of the church rests in defective people. I mean, walk over to children's ministry and look around. You'll be so encouraged by the children you see, and then you'll say, oh my, the future rests in them, because it'll freak you out. And the same is true about us, because that's what should really frighten us, is that that was once us. How quickly we forget our own baggage. Shortly after I was converted, I have this vivid memory of having my pastor inquire of me why Kim and I hadn't joined a church. And I gave him what I thought was a very eloquent but rather pointed response of all of the reasons that we hadn't joined his church. And the pastor was somewhat and understandably alarmed by my attitude. 
And he contacted the man who was kind of reaching out to me as a new believer and working with me and basically said to the guy, you know what, <laughs> don't bother with him. He is, he is too proud. And that, that was a completely understandable response because of the way that I conducted myself, which was not uncommon in those days. And this guy said to the pastor, you know what, I can't, I can't explain it, but I, there's something I, I see in this guy, Dave. In other words, I, I see something beyond his baggage to the gospel at work within him. And so this man tolerated my foolishness for the better part of two or three years. And somewhere in there, and I don't exactly remember when it was, but somewhere in there, God broke me. And I became just a little bit more pliable in the hands of the Lord because I was, I was Onesimus. I was a slave with baggage trying to be free. That was me. You know, the challenge for us is that with age sometimes comes arrogance. In other words, we forget what it's like to be Onesimus. We sit across from people and we think, boy, I can't relate to that. And it's not that we don't have any experiences in that. We just forget. We just elevate ourselves slowly with the passing of every year. Sometimes if we had to deal with an earlier version of ourselves, we'd be disgusted. God would pull back the veil. Hey, guess what? This is you 20 years ago. But we can't see beyond the baggage. See, here's my point. For Paul, baggage matters. Why? Because it gives the opportunity to see through the gospel and it connects people's need to the gospel. That baggage that they have is the place where God's going to do some of his most amazing work. And so we have to see not only the baggage, but see beyond the baggage to the gospel work that is at work in them through God. So a slave comes knocking. What does Paul see? Paul sees a son, Paul sees a leader. Because the gospel shapes what we see in those we serve. Can you imagine having Onesimus knock at your door, but you don't see just this runaway slave, this criminal. You see somebody who could be ultimately a son, somebody who could be ultimately a key ministry person. You can see the future of the work of the church in Onesimus. That's what Paul saw. So Paul, what Paul does is he starts with conversion because Onesimus is converted under Paul, and he engages Onesimus all the way through to the point where Onesimus is useful. He goes from being useless to useful, is what the Scripture said. Formerly, he said in verse 11, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me, because Paul was able to see beyond his own prison, beyond his own problems, all the way through Onesimus' baggage, all the way to gospel usefulness. We really have to think about this. You know, we get a new believer in here. and They have no idea about what the Scriptures teach about oh, speech or relationships or modesty or, or, you know, whatever it might be. What do we see first? I remember a leader telling me about greeting a woman at church who had this low-cut blouse on and she had a, a tat on her chest. And how everybody in the church was so bent out of shape because this woman had come in, new believer, 
and you know, she's trying to take steps forward. Church just couldn't handle it. Somehow, I don't think Paul's first concern would be with the modesty of the dress of somebody like that or the tattoos on her body. I don't think Paul, Paul would go there because he sees something else. The gospel shapes what we see in those we serve. So you've got a proud guy in your small group who, you know, talks too much and tends to say outrageous things. Or maybe it's the opposite. It's, it's, it's a woman or a guy who doesn't say anything. You know, and, and we're so tempted to assign motives to that kind of stuff and make judgments and think about what that really represents when sometimes God's up there saying, hey, I got him to the small group. Can, can I get props for that? Can you magnify me and thank me because I'm working in them in such a degree that they've made whatever sacrifices are necessary just to come out to your meeting? See, here's what I'm trying to say. It's not hard to see baggage. It doesn't take a prophet to see baggage. There's no kudos to us because we see sin. It's easy to see sin. What's hard is seeing grace. What's hard is seeing the Spirit's activity in the soul of a person, seeing beyond the baggage. So baggage matters because it's the place for gospel engagement. It's the place for gospel transformation, just like it was for Onesimus. I brought a quote with me, and uh, I'm going to wrap up with this. This is from a ship's captain. The name of the ship was the African. The year is 1752. And this is what the ship captain said, and then I want to tell you a little bit after I read the quote. I want to tell you a little bit about the captain. He said, quote, I never knew sweeter or more frequent hours of divine communion than in my last two voyages to Guinea. When I was almost secluded from society on shipboard, or went on shore among the natives. I have wandered through the woods, reflecting on the singular goodness of the Lord to me. Now, the Christian man who is writing those words is John Newton. John Newton, if that name is not familiar, is the author of Amazing Grace. And I understand that when he wrote those words, he had already authored Amazing Grace, the song, and it was in circulation, and he was well known for it. The vessel that he captained, the African, was a slave ship. John Newton was converted at the age of 23, but he didn't become captain He didn't quit being captain of this slave vessel until he was 29 or 30 years old. And even then, the only reason he stopped being a captain is because he had an epileptic seizure, which rendered him unfit from being able to captain a ship. Now, you do the math with me. Because this guy, John Newton, was wrestling through a calling to ministry while he was still delivering and marketing slaves. Here's a question just to kind of bend our mind out of shape a little bit. What if he arrived at your care group after having just dropped off his cargo? You know, and that ceremonial exchange begins that that we always have. So, John, how long have you been a Christian? I've been a believer for, I think, eight or nine years. Really? Oh, that's great. Isn't God good? 
What do you do? Like a captain of a slave ship. See, my point is not to, that we have to avoid correcting or admonishing or addressing sin. And certainly in a situation like that, somebody that is in relationship with him should step up and begin to educate him on what Scripture says about his particular vocation. But my question for us this morning is, what would you see? Could we see beyond that? Beyond that sin that he is engaged in to a useful future? Could we see beyond a slave ship captain to John Newton who would help shut down the slave industry because of the influence that he would have on William Wilberforce? The gospel shapes what we see in those we serve. And so baggage matters because it's the very place where the gospel does its greatest work. Just like it did for Paul. Just like it did for Onesimus. Just like it did for you and for me. Let's pray.